calling for accountability is an act of love and care. And I think as a survivor, it's important to ground in that. Welcome to Black Tea Speaks, the podcast about feminist epistemologies, healing practices, and justice. Black Tea Speaks is a community of practice that is rooted in and guided by those whose voices are often forgotten or refuted. It aims to recognize that our Black, Indigenous, disabled, queer, and trans voices are sources of expertise. We are healers and cultural workers aiming to delve into the intersections where other lifestyle and self-help content often glides over or does not engage with. We offer tools to build cross-movement solidarity and radical activism. We are expansive and most importantly, we will speak. I'm your host, Gray Butler, so grab a cup of your favorite beverage and enjoy the episode. I would like to begin this episode by acknowledging that this recording is taking place on the occupied territory of the Biscataway people and to implore listeners to look into the land from which they are listening from and to connect with local indigenous organizations to aid in solidarity movements uniquely localized. Some links will be in the podcast description and on the Black Tea Speaks website that will help listeners figure out what land they are on and to connect with local indigenous groups. Before we begin, I wanted to give a content warning for brief discussions of neglect, childhood sexual abuse, and emotional abuse. Today's episode, we will be diving into a conversation about the roles of shame and guilt in healing and our movement work with our guest and my good friend, Saren. Saren is a rising sophomore at Wesleyan University. They are a writer and aspiring clinical psychologist. They're also active in the mental health advocacy community, focusing on healing and trauma as a survivor. They also are an ally and organizer for the Anti-Racism Education Project, a platform to connect those who want to learn with existing educational resources and supportive community and opportunities to engage with Black scholars, artists, and activists. And I will have the link to all of this in the podcast description. But before we dive in, I wanted to give a background on both what inspired and influenced this topic. In my own life, I've been tackling the topic of shame as a survivor of childhood emotional and sexual abuse. And in my journey, I've begun to tackle the ways in which I embody shame and how shame magnifies within my communities at a larger emergent scale. And a part of that processing for me has involved not only years of therapy, but also modes of diving into my own spiritual healing work. These past few months, I have found that slowly coming into my own practices and carving out my own spirituality rooted in my blackness and history and growing understanding of ancestral spiritual healing to be incredibly grounding for an experience both in our current historical moment and in response to the historical spiritual violence against Black and Indigenous people of color, as well as my own healing as a trauma survivor. And so about a week ago, we experienced both a full moon and a lunar eclipse, something that is spiritually and culturally significant to me as a time of reflection, change, and emotional purging. So naturally, I partook in my own full moon healing and release ritual. Prior to the eclipse and full moon, I had had the plan to create an episode about 
the idea of white guilt and shame and the role of shame in our movements, but struggled with getting those thoughts into a coherent piece and very candidly really struggled with writing this episode. Then in my own spiritual practices and after our conversation with Saren, who we'll be hearing from in a bit, I became aware indirectly of my own personal shame that I had embodied as a trauma survivor. It was shame about my body, my mind, my identities, my position of power and marginality, shame at finding joy in moments of grief and at enjoying content that I knew to be a little problematic in some ways, shame at most of the intimate vulnerabilities of my traumas and desires, shame at the ways that I move through the world slowly and sometimes illegibly and divergently, and that had all been clinging to me so strongly these past few weeks. All of these were things that I thought I'd worked through and moved past onto new issues, but it became apparent to me as I was reminded that healing and change is an iterative, nonlinear process. I also found myself not only being weighed down by my own shame, but also the shame of others when in spaces where my multiple marginalities came into tension with those around me. So often in spaces meant for one of my accesses of marginality, such as being queer or trans or autistic, I found myself engaging with the white folks in these spaces who struggled to acknowledge the ways in which their own whiteness embedded harm into how they move through the world as marginalized people. And recently in one of these spaces for autistic folks, I went on to express some of my own frustrations with dealing with anti-blackness in these sort of spaces. And many of the responses from the other white people in the room were latent with tone policing or statements about how my experiences were just a misunderstanding of how autistic folks communicate because somehow as marginalized people, they understood what being marginalized was like. So it was unlikely that they were intentionally being racist or some form of separating themselves from embodying the very harm that I was expressing anguish and anger over. I think that this, like so many other instances, arises out of this sort of gut reaction to a shame trigger at the thought of causing harm or partaking in a system that causes harm. There has to be an action to quell that shame and so it gets translated into a sort of deflection or rationalizing. But it also was not my responsibility, nor is it my interest to make space to placate the feelings of shame embodied by my oppressors. Shame that is so embodied and so automatic that it's not even realized by the people who are feeling it. And so, in my full moon ritual, I set the intention for myself to release all kinds of shame. Not just mine, but also my sense of responsibility for white people's shame that takes up so much space. Not because I wanted to feel better, which in and of itself is reason enough, but because I also knew that in order to engage in this work, in order to engage in healing activism, in order to engage in transformative justice and to be accountable to my communities as well as the positions of power that I also hold, I had to find a way to transmute my shame into something more generative and to also not preoccupy myself with other people's shame. That being said, I wanted to still talk on the issue and create a resource and discussion so I and hopefully others who listen can move forward through and not be beholden to shame, be it their own or taking on the burden and shame of your oppressors. 
In a TED Talk called Listening to Shame, shame and vulnerability expert Brene Brown says, Shame drives two big tapes, never good enough, and if you can talk it out of that one, who do you think you are? The thing to understand about shame is it's not guilt. Shame is a focus on self, guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is I am bad, guilt is I did something bad. And I really like this idea of the distinction between shame and guilt, these two similar and often conflated emotions with radically different outcomes. It doesn't completely do away with the sense of negative emotion or accountability, but it does acknowledge a certain kind of toxicity towards some of the ways in which we try to operate and manifest change. She also goes on to talk about the ways in which shame is neurologically associated with addiction and continued behavior, while guilt is associated with remorse and empathy and changed behavior. She also makes a really important comment on shame and the conversation of race. She says, We heard the most compelling call ever to have a conversation in this country, and I think globally, around race, right? Cannot have that conversation without shame. Because you cannot talk about race without talking about privilege. And when people start talking about privilege, they get paralyzed by shame. It also opens a path towards actionable change. Guilt says, how do I make amends? How do I change my behavior in the future? And without shame, you can be reminded of the beliefs in others that you once held while holding space for a level of growth. And I think most importantly, it opens up the space for white folks to hold other white folks' shame so that people of color don't have to hold that space for them while they work through anti-racist work. And on this note, I invited my friend Saren, one of the first people to kind of introduce me to this idea of shame versus guilt, to talk about these intersections and to provide some insight and tools for allies who wish to do this sort of transformative shame work. So the first question that I have to you is, um, what does the distinction between shame and guilt mean for you personally? So... Lots of thoughts, lots of feels. I mean, I think, like, as a trauma survivor, like, I have a specific, like, relationship to that in terms of shame is definitely more out of, like, trauma and it's more of the sort of feeling of, like, you know, like, I'm a bad person or I'm inherently, like, have some lesser moral value. Um, And guilt is more of, like, I did something bad, I messed up, and that, like is relatively healthier they both suck but like I think oftentimes shame it's a lot easier to sort of get stuck in it as opposed to guilt can sort of more often be like a pivot point it's more of like okay well I messed this up so I'm gonna do better whereas shame is like okay I'm gonna just go curl up into a ball and cry under the covers for a while because I despise myself and that's like a whole other (laughs) whole other experience as a trauma survivor, for at least, I, I think for me, and I'm wondering how it is for you, um, there is, because there is this like sort of familiarity with um, the shame process and like dealing with that, especially not just as trauma survivors, but as like someone who's like done, started to do the work working through it. Um, I feel like there's this sort of source of embodied knowledge of how to deal with it um, because we have to deal with it in our interpersonal lives in order to like survive and exist. Um, So I was wondering 
you know, how have you navigated this idea of shame versus guilt in your own life? And also with like the, the intersections of your identities and interpersonally. I mean, okay, so for one, definitely not there yet. It still sucks. It's still an issue on the regular for me. Um, and I think it's like, in my own experiences in terms of handling shame and guilt, like, at least with shame, I feel like I've been able to sort of speak it out of existence in a way. Um, like I'm a writer and I do like slam and spoken word and that's been like my way of moving through it because if I can be able to like, when I'm able to talk about stuff openly and even if I don't feel that, to act as if I'm not ashamed of it and to own it and to be able to, like I think it's very much like a co-regulation thing too, being able to talk about something with someone else and have them be like, hey, I'm also in the same boat as you and I don't really feel shame around it or I've moved through my shame around it. I think that's incredibly powerful to see that and to like, especially as a survivor, to have that community and to have that, this is such a tangent, but like sort of like that unconditional acceptance, I think mm -hmm. is really how you mm -hmm. like sort of kill shame. It, it kind of like illuminates it in a way or like names it and like because I think like a lot of a key aspect of shame that might not necessarily be the case with guilt is like shame is something that is unspeakable at least like trauma a lot of times traumas um are unspeakable and so like giving yes. voice to that especially with other people yeah. who have experienced it seems to like break down this like this part of shame that's like yeah. you don't talk about yeah. this at all what you were saying was totally reminding me of, like, I've done a lot of thinking about sort of the power of story and the power of, like, owning our stories. And I think that's absolutely related to sort of combating shame and being able to see our stories represented, being able to see, especially, I know in my experience, hearing the stories of older survivors has been so incredibly transformative for me because they've been able to speak out loud the things that I never thought I could share with someone that I could have in common or ever be able to put out into the world mm -hmm. and it feels like the first time you hear that or you see it from somebody else it's like you've you've just been given permission to talk about it because then you don't even have to say, you know, you can be like, well, you know, I had an experience sort of like this author or sort of like this writer. Mm, yeah. And you don't have to even, right? Because the words for it are already there. And you don't have to make your own. And oftentimes, like, when we don't feel like our own words are, like, enough or strong enough or we're not ready, we can just speak in quotes. Being able to have a conversation about what happened without having to make it about the details of what's happened. Being able to talk in the generalities and talk in metaphors and find a way to connect over the metaphors without having to go into the like nitty gritty details of like, oh, this is exactly what happened to me and this is the person who hurt me and like this is how it worked. It can literally just be like, well, I sort of, you know, here's this quote or here's this song mm. lyric or here's this framework that I use about thinking about my experiences and that maybe we can sort of make our own framework out of relating to it almost yeah that makes a lot of sense and that's a really beautiful way to put it um i also wanted to bring up Brene brown 
because in her TED Talk, she mentions that you can't have a conversation about race without addressing shame. So I was wondering, what does it mean for you as a survivor to navigate shame and guilt versus white shame when confronted with anti-racist work? Yeah, so it's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot going on there. Um, I think, I mean, one of the things that we've talked about this before was like there was this one Instagram post that has just like really stuck with me from this one therapist I follow who's white and who's a trauma survivor and talks about using experiences of trauma as a jumping off point and then like a place of empathy, which I thought was incredibly powerful. And especially the, just the phrasing of saying to mobilize your trauma response. I think for, in, at least for me, like shame paralyzes, guilt motivates sometimes, you know? So I think it's like a whole sort of negotiation between like, well, okay, so I'm, if I'm just drowning in shame and I'm just saying, hey, I suck, like that's not gonna move me to make any changes because it feels like a permanent state as opposed to guilt where it's like, this is a temporary, like I've messed something up, but I can do better. And that to me is almost motivation. It's like, well, I feel like crap right now. And so hopefully that's, you know, I mean, it's like, okay, well, when you mess up, you feel really bad. And so you learn to not mess up again. You know, like, I think that sometimes guilt, like if you handle it without spiraling, it can sort of be like that and be like, I don't want to say a teaching tool, but like kind of a teaching tool. But I think that also gets back into like what we were saying a while ago about sort of shame and remorse and that all of that and like accountability and how all those things are intertwined and how they relate to each other in terms of there's space to say hey you messed up I know you can do better that's why I'm calling you out um so show me you know show me that you can like do better and like the idea of this is a bit tangential but like a lot of people I follow have been saying which I like it's initially took me a while to grasp but I definitely think it's interesting and I definitely think it's true, is the idea of um, calling for accountability as an act of love and care. And I think as a survivor, it's important to ground in that and know that, like, in the past, people calling attention to mistakes did not do it out of a place of love or care. They did it out of a place of, like, you know, I'm good and you're bad. Without going into too much detail, like, I think that at times internet culture and, like, internet activist culture is not conducive to the kind of conversations that people want and need to have. Um, So I'll just sort of put that as a little disclaimer there first. But given that, I think grounding in the whole, like, if people didn't care about me, they would not bother holding me accountable. And again, it's like the temporary versus permanent thing. You know, when people hold me accountable, it's reaffirming that they think this mis- this is a mistake or that this is a temporary state of doing something bad, but that it's not a permanent state of being bad. I think that almost ties into what we were saying before with cancel culture, because I think that oftentimes it's like people get canceled when we don't believe they have the capability to change. And I think that's also like, there's a lot of other dynamics going on there in terms of like white folks calling on other white folks, being willing to spend emotional labor on something, not because they, they are directly harmed by it. Because I think that's like, that's another sort of, I mean, that's another dynamic of like call outs and stuff, because there's a difference between like calling someone out because what you're saying is actively harmful to you as a person and calling someone out because you're like, hey, this is going to hurt somebody else potentially. Let's have a talk about it. Yeah, I think that that 
that's something that I have noticed in certain activist spaces when it comes to like the work that allies should be doing because as you said there is this kind of different dynamic between um whether or not you're personally affected by it and I feel like I've seen sometimes allies like co-opt and leverage the amount of like self-righteous valid self-righteous anger that people affected will have and be like I'm just calling you out and like I'm not going to explain anything to you Google is free Mm -hmm. and all this other stuff where it's like no that's not your job in this movement Mm -hmm. like it should not be the role of marginalized folks to make sure that their call outs are accessible to everybody because for one there's literally no way for something to be accessible to everybody all the time like that's just competing access needs so, like, that's not going to happen. And, like, that's also, like, an undue emotional emotional labor and undue emotional burden to them. But, like, that there are ways where, like, especially it's, like, if it's someone who you know, you know, and you just sort of know how to, like, bring it up with them and to navigate that and, like, to navigate, like, I know in my own experience, there's, I mean, again, it's, like, it's all about the dialectics. Like, there are opposites everywhere. Um, making the space between, like, okay, don't center yourself, but also knowing that, like, as a neglect survivor, I feel bad taking up space, and so I don't know, like, I need to learn to navigate, if it makes sense, like, learning to navigate the, like, push and pull between those two different aspects of myself, and the responsibility I have to both of those aspects of myself, because I'm not doing anyone any favors by pretending I don't have needs and then blowing up when those don't get met. Mm-hmm. I've seen it as even, like, sort of like you can be triggered by something or have a response to something but the responsibility to placate that isn't going to be on the person you've harmed like I've Mm -hmm. I've even seen in like my own interpersonal like interactions that might not necessarily like apparently be on like accesses of power although accesses of power are like always present just like with like between me and like another trauma survivor and there's things going on it's like heated and sometimes it's, it I've noticed it'll be like I'm blowing up and then I'm like I'm blowing up yeah. not really at yeah. the person who told me that I harmed them and that for me I will like yeah I do deserve to like be able to like go somewhere talk to a trusted friend I, I've there have had to talk to things or had to journal or like do whatever to like hold space for how I feel and the good, bad, and the ugly, but I couldn't expect the person that I had made a transgression against to be that person to hold that container for me. Because I do get the sense that a lot of white shame goes to this place of, okay, I'm going to center everything and Mm -hmm. I just don't have any negative feelings. Like you just swallow them and just don't deal with them and then it comes out when then like white allies have to deal with other like white people saying and doing like anti-black things and they like have no capacity to tolerate any form of ignorance to the point of like actually doing the transformative work and I suspect that some of it comes from this unprocessed shame about their own interactions where they have been called out and like don't have the like emotional bandwidth to um 
create that container and space and like learning opportunity for other folks and so then the labor falls back on black folks or like not that all marginalities are interchangeable but like it's a phenomenon across a lot of different Mm -hmm. marginalities yeah yeah on a similar note i was wondering for you what do you think triggers this shame response in response to racism and how do you conceptualize it i think that there's so much emotional baggage from like in white folks especially white liberals about the idea that like being a like quote unquote a racist means being like this evil monster and they're like well i'm not an evil monster so i'm not a racist and then take that and are just like okay i'm not going to take accountability for any of this because i'm not an awful person um so i think a lot of that like i think a lot of that comes back to like what i was saying before about like we've all caused harm and we are all capable of change and that's so so hard because i think that oftentimes like the shame response comes out of this perception that like once you've caused harm you're like tainted you know mm-hmm. and that you're you're, you're committed just, the sin yeah you're you're a dirty racist sinner yeah and like i think that that's what keeps like what prevents people from taking accountability because they're like well I don't want to be seen this way or I don't want to feel this way. You know, even for a lot of survivors, they're like, well, I don't want to be, you know, spun into that headspace. So I'm just not going to like own up because I don't see a way. You don't want to be like an abuser. Yeah. I think that's another major thing for like survivors who are going through both survivorship and dealing with their own relation to power. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like that's like so much of like noun language bugs me for that reason and I don't I still am figuring out how I feel about this because this has literally been a very new like thing that I've been thinking about um like as a survivor like I have a lot of feels about it but I think that like maybe it's not always the best to call someone an abuser as a noun if it's not I think exception if it is someone who has harmed you directly I think you have a right to refer to it however the hell you want because that's your experience And when it's something that isn't directly happening to you, I think that there's something, I think that there's a way in which especially internet culture frames abusers as beyond redemption um, that really isn't conducive. You know, I mean, it's almost like, it's punitive and it's almost a parallel to like a lot of the conversations that I've been seeing um, around how like there's a tension between arrest the killer cops and being abolitionist. And that's so hard because it's like, like I want to, for the most part, like I want to, no, in the whole part, I want to defer to the people who are harmed in negotiating how to handle the harm that they have been through. And also I do have moral qualms about like the tension between people saying, oh, well, you know, like we need to be critical of the way we talk about crime and we need to be critical of not writing people off as the worst thing they've done. And so, I mean, again, it's like, because there is a point, there is a point of no return somewhere. And I think there's also like a lot of folks who kind of jump on the bandwagon of like, yeah, abolish the prison industrial complex. And we'll also be reposting like, oh, arrest killer cops, because those are like both popular quote unquote, you know, things to be saying, but like, don't realize that those two things are in opposition. And I don't know if there's any way to like work around that. 
Like, is there a way to pull those into a, a healthier tension? I also think, like, a couple things. One, this sort of reimagining how we conceptualize harm and accountability. And I think, because, like, I kind of... um work I'm trying to work from this framework where anytime it seems like there is a dichotomy or like oppositional forces that there is some sort of way to disidentify with it and that there is some sort of way to reimagine the structure and like figuring out how that's actually doable is another step but I'm thinking of even in my own life as a survivor when people like do harm to me having first this space to to like work through and heal away helps me then be in a position for me to figure out what will actually be restorative because i think that there is also not to and, and like it's a fine line because i think people take this and run with it and then demonize and gaslight survivors and in survivor in the broadest sense of like both interpersonal trauma and like systematic trauma um but there is this space where it's like when i'm in the the moment of like someone doing harm to me that retribution that I want might look different if when it first happens versus like when it happens and I have access to care and feeling like the retribution that I need when I have access to care might be in in a healthier tension than when it's not. So there's these different moving, there's these moving pieces. And I think the other thing that I was, uh, I guess this is like slightly related when talking about the whole noun versus verb thing, I also wonder kind of like what you what you mentioned that there's this assuming that it's this idea of like this evil act um, to be racist. But I also wonder, like going a bit deeper is like I also think that like we culturally don't have a conceptualization of like evilness and like not understanding that like both the concept of evil and the concept of like racism and everything in and of itself is like emergent and in the in the sense that like it builds from these little acts and so it's I think it's really hard for all of us in a lot of ways to like conceptualize how it scales up and like uh, account how does accountability scale towards that because right now the like quote-unquote justice system that we have just does not have a framework to capture scale in any substantive way and I, th- I think that that is a part of the like work that we have to like be imagining and creating and like fumbling through yeah because it's, it's hard yeah. and I think it like there's no easy answers. And I feel like that almost goes into like sort of the next thing we were going to talk about, which was this idea of mindfulness as a metaphor. Because I think that it's more important to be anti-racist than non-racist because it's sort of like mindfulness in that the goal of mindfulness is not, at least initially, to be like, I will never have any thoughts because <laughs> that's not going to happen right away. And it probably won't happen ever. Um, my brain's a very loud place, <laughs> at least for me. Um, and the goal is to be able to just you know, catch yourself and say, okay, having thoughts, 
I'm gonna redirect, you know, in so much as like within um, anti-racist work to be able to say, oh, okay, I just said something problematic. I'm gonna take accountability for that. And now I'm gonna redirect instead of just going down the rabbit hole. And like that the goal is not to stop doing the thing, at least initially, the goal is to be able to change how you respond to the thing. And I think that is something that, again, I mean, I think we've talked, like, I think that in a lot of ways it sums up a lot of what we've talked about today because we've talked about a lot of, like, ways people respond to causing harm that, like, are really not productive, which I guess begs the question, like, well, how do you respond? And I think the answer is, like, it's mistakes as opportunity almost, you know, being like, okay, I messed up. This This is a chance for me to practice accountability. This is a chance for me to practice also like having space having space between both honoring the needs of people who I've harmed and honoring my own needs and honoring the fact that like I am still deserving of care even mm-hmm. when I mess up because I yeah. will mess up that kind of reminds me of like my own experiences with mindfulness through like dialectical behavioral therapy for like borderline personality disorder that this is kind of like this idea that interpersonally you're going to like have your intense emotions like you can't change that that like that's going to happen I think in a similar way because we live in a oppressive society that you're going to have those initial racist or ableist or all of these like thoughts and those initial action urges when you're on autopilot to react to and that in you know in my experience with borderline I definitely have like my impulse urges that I've learned now are like if I act on them they create toxic situations that could spiral into abusive situations and learning that one I can't feel shame for feeling that necessarily because understanding that there are some instances where it does actually come from a place of immense pain and immense trauma and like all of these things but to understand that that dialect is true and also how I respond to it has to be differently because when if I act on it in this way it creates a toxic situation and I think that that can be in a lot of ways mapped on to like anti-racist work because like you're gonna have racist thoughts you're gonna do racist things and you're going to embody harm and you have to create this space between the reaction that is a manifestation of society and how you process and deal with that and and it also reminded me um and I know we've like mentioned this a little bit before and like it maps on really well to this other notion that one of my professors was talking to me when talking about mindfulness as like a decolonial like anti-racist tool for like marginalized folks as well this idea that white supremacy is very much an attack on like the psyche of people of color and that being in a constant state of trauma and fear literally hijacks your nervous system and so to be able to pull yourself back into your body and like to pull yourself back in to have these moments when you navigate your immediate survival response in different ways is another way of regaining agency 
And I think that in a lot of ways, sometimes we frame it as if white supremacy doesn't also impact white people. And like, it absolutely does. And so like white supremacy is a system still like hijacks, I think in a lot of ways, the automatic response. And so I, I do think of this, the you know, the metaphor that you use of mindfulness is like a super applicable one the same way when talking about shame can be super applicable because there is both an unawareness of self and shame involved in like those who have been subjected to marginality and oppression and then also those who perpetuate it um and so I think that that's a really that can be a really useful tool and framework to like think about doing anti-racist work from this from that place Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm Um, And I know it's kind of been like slipped in and out of some of the answers, but what for you has been like particularly transformative in like your own growth and understanding of anti-racist work or like what has been like a really transformative or radical idea that made you like go, oh my God, I'm looking at this in a different way. I mean, a couple of the Tumblr posts I mentioned, like, I think really, like, that one line that I told you about, the, like, don't mirror the way people of color talk about white folks as an oppressor class because it's not the same as, like, the way you should talk about yourself. Um, Like, that definitely made me think a lot. The idea of perfectionism as a manifestation of white supremacy was definitely one of them. I mean, and I think a lot of it's, I mean, there's no, like huge aha moments necessarily because I think a lot of it's just a process of like trying to integrate stuff with what you already know and trying to figure a way around things like as someone who like already thinks a lot about sort of dialectics and opposites just in mental health you know so being able to take that experience and apply it here and apply it in the context of you know thinking about harm and I mean it's definitely made me think about a lot of my own (laughs) a lot of my own responses to things and that's just definitely been a journey and watching other people also sort of question the same stuff having older activists to follow and to watch especially other survivors and other white survivors talking about like how they've leveraged that experience like again you know all comes back to like the way we kill shame is connecting to others and the way we kill shame about messing up is watching others mess up and be okay with it so i wanted to recap a couple of the main takeaways from this interview One of the first ones has to do with this idea of these reoccurring tensions or these sort of paradoxes and the experiences of being a trauma survivor and someone in a position of power. That a huge part of navigating shame is to bring these tensions into a healthy relationship and these tensions can be in your own experiences of trauma and shame and the need to have care at the same time, not expecting that care coming from the person you've harmed. And another revolutionary aspect for Saren was that mobilizing experiences of trauma can be used for good. This sort of idea that when you work through trauma and understand how trauma works, that can put you in a position of empathy if you mobilize your trauma in an anti-racist way. And the last takeaway is that Your trauma response can be valid when being called out and that you are deserving of care for however you feel in response to that, 
but that those responses aren't the responsibility of those who are affected by these systems of oppression and that that is the role that allies play in creating this space to navigate those emotions. I wanted to give a shout out and a much thanks to all of my patrons on Patreon for supporting Black Tea Speaks. Um, if you are interested in becoming a sustaining member and get access, early access to podcasts and um, uncut interviews, as well as extra worksheets and potentially one-on-one or group webinars on kind of a chance to engage with some of these topics directly and in conversation, please consider becoming a Patreon and remember to like and review this podcast on iTunes. I also wanted to mention and announce that with each episode, I will be releasing um, additional infographics about vocabulary that's been used or related that I find particularly pertinent or concepts and available for Patreon members. Um, There's also accompanying worksheets that go into that. So be on the lookout for this upcoming um, episodes accompanying Rad Vocab. And with that, I wanted to close with something that Saren said that unfortunately the audio got messed up, but I think it is so incredibly important. They said, we are all guilty of something and we are still deserving of care. And I think we're keeping that dialect is so incredibly important. So that's the tea. Thank you for listening.